So what we, Ben and I, often like to do during the summer months uh, is to really do a deeper dive into a topic or a person in the Bible or a chapter of the Bible. And this summer, what we're going to do is work through the, the life of a person named Jacob. And there's so much there. We're actually going to spend many, many weeks going through the life of Jacob. I'm not going to tell you the number, otherwise you might not come back, because it's that many weeks that we're going to be working through the life of Jacob. But just to set it up, maybe you don't know anything about Jacob, and if so, like, I'm, I'm excited because you're going to learn some amazing things both today and hopefully throughout the series. Now, Jacob is a person in the Bible, and what I think all of you know is you could come up with a list of people from the Bible who inspire you in different ways. And maybe you could make your list like, let's make some heroes of the Bible. And like, who would we put on the list? Like, you read their story and it's just inspiring. And I think for, for most people, there's three names at least you could put on there. And I'm not going to put Jesus up there because that's a given. So we put Jesus. But Abraham, Abraham had this tremendous faith where he was willing to leave his homeland and just follow God's calling even though he didn't know where he was going. Tremendous man of faith. If there's a word to describe Abraham, faithful, full of faith. Not always, not perfect. We'll talk about that throughout the series, but Abraham is just an inspiration of faith. Second person, David, the young shepherd boy who became the king, the, the guy who killed Goliath and led the Israelites to incredible military victory to the point where there were two generations of peace within this kingdom. Wow, if, if there is a word for Daniel, courageous, strong in the Lord, hero. Maybe also Daniel comes to mind. This exile from Israel who's now in a foreign land and he's being tempted and told to conform to these non-godly ways, but he stands his ground, defiantly confident in the Lord. Resilient is a word for Daniel. But you know who I wouldn't put on this list? Jacob. He doesn't belong on this list because he's messed up. And that's what I want to show you throughout this, this series. That's what Ben and I are going to focus on. It's, it's interesting because you look at the story of Jacob and it's like as, as his account was being written down, there was no shyness about revealing all of his weaknesses. And there were plenty of them. If there was one word to describe Jacob, I might use the word struggling. And here's where his story probably intersects with yours. If you ever asked someone, hey, how are you doing? And you were expecting the typical, I'm fine. But instead they said, I'm struggling. And when they said those two words, it's like the, the entire room went, went quiet and you just focused on them and you said, what's wrong? What's going on? And throughout most of Jacob's life, if you were able to you know, walk alongside him and sit down with him and say, Jacob, how are you doing? And if he was honest, he would have said, I'm struggling. And throughout his struggling, he actually went through his struggling in a way that actually made the struggling worse. And what I want to do for you today and for me is, is to understand this, that when it comes to our struggling, the, the, the reason why you struggle is because something's missing. 
that's pretty obvious. If you're struggling physically, let's say you're running a race and you got one more lap to go and the coach says, how are you doing? And if you say, I'm struggling, it's because you're low on energy. You're struggling. Um, sometimes you're not sure what to do. And so your brain is just on overload. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm struggling with what to do. It's because you're lacking wisdom. So when it comes to the way you're struggling in your life right now or in the past or in the future, the first thing we should do when struggling is to ask, what am I lacking? What is it you are lacking? Is it wisdom? Is it energy? Is it sleep? Sometimes we struggle and we don't realize exactly what it is we are lacking. And so what I want to show for you today is one, one big thing Jacob was lacking but how his version of struggling actually made it worse. And let's be honest, the way we often struggle doesn't make things better. And so I'm, we're going to turn over to Genesis chapter 25 today to just get an introductory look at who Jacob was, why he had such a life of, of struggling, and what we can do to learn from it so that we don't turn our struggling into even worse suffering. And the account of Jacob begins in Genesis 25, where it gives us a backdrop into his ancestors. So his grandfather was Abraham, and Abraham was the father of Isaac, the dad of Jacob. And the reason I wanted to pause here is because there was something special about Abraham. God had given a blanket promise to the world that there would be a savior someday, but then, when Abraham came, God basically said, the Savior will come through him. And there were basically two big uh, blessings that God gave to Abraham. Even though Abraham didn't have any kids, and his wife couldn't have children, God said, you will become the father of many nations. So a lot of people from different nations could all trace their ancestry back to him. But then on top of that, God said, all nations will be blessed through you. One of his descendants would be the one. And so I'm not sure what it looked like, but I'm sure there was a day where Isaac was old enough and Abraham sat down with him and he said, Isaac, this is going to sound crazy, but there's something you should know about the, the family line. And Isaac's like, oh, what did we do? <laughs> and Abraham said, no, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a crazy thing. You know, God has promised a savior. It's going to come through us. It's going to come through you. One of your descendants will be the one through whom all nations are blessed. So Isaac's like, wow, that's cool. And Isaac was the only child. He, he had a half-brother, but uh, he wasn't included in this promise. And so Isaac was like the only child. And he's like, all right. And so the, the story goes on. Isaac eventually got a wife. And this section gives us the insight into that. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And these next two lines aren't so important today, but footnote these because we'll come back to these names later in the series. Rebecca was the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and she was also the sister of Laban, the Aramean. So those names will come up later. What we know is now Isaac is married. He's 40 years old. All right, here comes the promise, but there's a problem. Rebecca can't have children, which is eerily similar to what happened with Abraham. <laughs> His wife couldn't have children. And so what we see here is Isaac immediately prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And so the Lord 
answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. They were happy. They were joyful. Awesome. But there was a problem. Things weren't feeling right. And I love how Genesis describes this. I've never been pregnant, but it describes it for you. The babies jostled. And that word jostle, it's like they're, they're like the, a t- Tasmanian devil, just ripping things apart in there. And it's just, what is going on? They jostled within her, and she said, and this is really mysterious in the Hebrew. It's really hard to translate. She said, why is this happening to me? Um, literally, she said, if this, why me? How can I make it through this? This is not what I signed up for. <laughs> Something's going on. And she didn't understand. And so she inquired of the Lord. She said, I need to know what's happening. She couldn't go to an ultrasound, and so she went to the Lord. And the Lord told her something unexpected. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And here's the unexpected part. The older will serve the younger. There's conflict. One day, these two will come out of you and they're going to have conflict, but that conflict was already beginning in her womb. There was like a WWE match, except it was for real. (laughs) Tables were being broken, chairs being cracked over each other's backs. It was getting nasty in there. And God said, this is just a preview of the suffering you will endure when your children will separate and fight in real life, in, in adult life. And so when the time came for her to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first to come out was red. We're not sure if that's referring to the color of his hair or his skin, just his complexion, we're not sure. And his whole body was like a hairy garment, which I've never described my kids in those terms. <laughs> Hey, congratulations on your kid being born. Yeah, he was hairy and like a this red, hairy garment. Just, yeah. So they named him Esau. They didn't get too creative back then. They basically saw the baby and they said, okay, he looks red, he's hairy, we'll name him Esau. Esau either refers to his hairiness and or his redness. We're not entirely sure. But because of how he looked, that's how he was named, Esau. And then comes the other. After this, his brother came out, get this, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. They're still wrestling, even as they're being born. And so he was named Jacob. Again, they weren't too creative. Jacob basically comes from the word heel. (laughs) I'm not going to name my kids that, but if you want to, go for it. They named him heel, heel grabber. And here's the interesting thing. In Hebrew... um, literature, and and even in the way they talked, that was actually an idiom. And an idiom is like a play on words, like it's raining cats and dogs is like an idiom we have in English. It's not literally raining cats and dogs, but it's an idiom. In Hebrew, they had the idiom heel grabber. If someone was a heel grabber, it means they're trying to deceive you. So if you're going to meet someone on Facebook marketplace, your, your friend might say, hey, just watch out, they might be a heel grabber. Or don't let them grab your heels. So that's, that was an idiom that they had, all coming from yours truly. So just imagine having that as your name growing up, heel grabber, basically deceiver. And that set the stage for what kind of a life he would live. It's just a small foreshadow 
of how he would endure his struggles throughout his life. And so we don't spend too much more time in their childhood. In fact, it goes on to fast forward to their adult life. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the open country. A man of the open country. While, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Esau was more a fleet farm guy. Esau was more of a bed, bath, and beyond. Esau was about hunting, bucks, ducks, elk, whatever he could find. Esau was more about interior design. And again, the Hebrew is a little unusual for Jacob here. It literally says he's a man of perfection. A man, and basically the, way, the best way to understand that is he's, he's just content with things the way they are. Why go out outside in the unconditioned air? Why go explore? I've got everything I need right here. And he was a very domesticated man. I'm sure he'd make a great husband. There are two very different boys. And then this last sentence here just tells you something's off. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, we're never told exactly how Jacob responded or reacted to this reality. But if you were to sit down with him and say, Jacob, how are you doing? If I were him, I'd say, I'm struggling. You see, my dad prayed for a son. But I am not the son he prayed for. Some of you know how that feels. Whether it was because of something a parent or grandparent said to you or just a feeling you got. You, you always felt like you weren't enough. You can never be enough. No matter how much you tried or struggled, you could never be the person you thought they wanted you to be. So what did Jacob lack? He lacked acceptance. He lacked a father who could love him in a fatherly way. And maybe we can pin this on Isaac's upbringing. He didn't understand dynamics, and he, he was always the favorite, and so he figured, well, maybe I just get to have my favorite. But Jacob lacked acceptance. So guess what he struggled for? He struggled to be someone who could be loved. And since he couldn't hunt, like Esau. Since he wasn't <clears throat> hairy, like Esau, I'm not sure he would want to be, but since he couldn't be his brother, he had only one other option. And the story continues to show us what that was. <clears throat> one day, Jacob was cooking some stew, because, you know, <laughs> domesticated. He's cooking some stew. Esau came in from the open country, famished, weakened, low blood sugar. We're not sure what it is, but he was weak. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And as I wrote through the, the Hebrew, um, it said, please. He actually said, please. He was polite. Please, let me swallow some of that red stuff, the red thing. He uses the word red twice. Red thing, red thing. And, and so it's like there's some urgency to it, but he knows what he's asking for. 
and he's, he's weakened, he's famished. He says, quick, give me some of that red stuff. And again, we're not, they're not too creative. That's why he is also called Edom. And by the way, this is where the nation of Edom comes from, from the descendants of Esau. Edom literally means red. So Esau points to the stew, the red stew, the red stew, give me that. And so that's why he inherited this nickname, Edom, big red. And to this day, we look through the Old Testament and we see the Edomites living to the southeast of the, 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 the Dead Sea. And forever their name was a reminder of what Esau asked for on that day. So what, what would you do? You're Jacob. You've been working all day in the kitchen. You've been working, you're slaving over the oven all day. And now your brother walks in and says, I'm hungry. I'm hangry. Give me some of your food. What would you do? Well, maybe, you know, let's work something out. You got some stuff I want. I got some stuff you want. Let's, let's have a little trade. And Jacob saw this as an opportunity to get something he wanted. So Jacob replied, first, before I give you this beautiful red stew, first, sell me your birthright. Uh, the word sell implies a transaction, not necessarily money being exchanged, but there is a, a, an official transaction that's happening. Sell me your birthright. And then this is the first time we see the word birthright come up in the scripture. And it seems like the original context of people who this was written for, like they understood what it was, but we might not. Birthright was all about the right of who was born first. And there were a few things that were true of the oldest son for each household. The first thing that was true is that when the parents would, would die, the oldest, the one with the birthright, would have a double portion of the inheritance. So for Esau and Jacob, the, the inheritance, let's say whatever amount it was, it would be divided into three equal portions, and then the one with the birthright would get two of them, and then the other would get one. So that's a perk, that's nice to be the oldest, get a double portion of the inheritance. And then there was something else. Uh, there was also the family business, because back in those days, each family clan was kind of its own business with its own farm, its own animals, its own system of doing things. And the one with the birthright would step in and continue that, while the others would have to go off and either become hired hands or try to start their own. So, all right, this is carrying on the family name, which is a big deal. But then, as we know, for Abraham and Isaac, there was an added thing along with this birthright. There was that promise of the Savior. Yes, Isaac and Jacob would both, be, Esau and Jacob would both become nations, but only one of them would carry this promise along with them. So, so, so Jacob says, I'll give you a bowl of stew. In exchange, give me your birthright. Now, is this a good trade, even trade? I have to work with my kids on this sometime. Like, they'll trade, like, one Jolly Rancher for $5. I'm like, nope, not a good trade. <laughs> Don't do that. So Jacob throws it out there. Sell me your birthright. And maybe, maybe Esau says, oh, you're kidding, right? <laughs> I'm about to die. What, what good is this silly old birthright to me, right? Ha, 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 ha. And then Jacob says, no, I'm serious. Swear to me. In today's terms, let's put this on paper and have it notarized. So 
Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, let's just analyze Jacob for a moment. Is this an honest move for one brother to do to another? This is exploitative, if that's a word. This is taking advantage of someone who is physically weakened. An important decision like this, I would hope that a loving brother would say, hey, I can see you're hungry. Let's, I'll go ahead and give you the food. Let's talk about the deal later. But instead, Jacob says, no, right now, today, in this moment, let's put this on paper. So Esau did. So Jacob lacked acceptance. What did he reach for to compensate? Number three, he reached for deception to compensate for what he lacked. Um, a quick illustration of what this means. Um, so uh, my wife never slips on the ice. She never slips on the ice because if there's the faintest possibility of ice being on the ground, she latches onto my arm and she, we walk together, and it's, it's very cautious, very slow. She never slips on the ice. Even when it's like 40 degrees, and I'm feeling a little silly, like, honey, there's no ice. She's like, you never know. <laughs> so in the, in the event, she does stand on some ice, and she slips a little. She's going to be totally fine, because she's always, like, she's holding on. Now, I'm the opposite. Now, I'm like the, I've got this. It's only 32 degrees. It's weather been, you know, I'm always like, I'm not going to look silly. I'm just going to go on my own and try to do things on my own. And I'll just give you a warning. If it might be slippery and you're standing nearby, I'll probably take you down with me. Because <laughs> what's true? What's true? When you're in the moment when you slip, it's not what you can hold on to. It's what you're already holding on to. And Jacob only knew one thing to hold on to. He had to deceive his way into getting the acceptance he wanted. And as he's grasping for, for acceptance and he's, he's holding on to deception, it's making a mess of the people around him. And I find that so often in my life, something I'm lacking. And I just grab for something that I think will help. And it ends up just making a mess. Maybe you've got a funny story where you actually slipped and you reached out for something and it was not sturdy and you just, poof, everything crashed and I hope you got it on video. But there's this moment where you reached out and nothing was sturdy and so you just caused a crash. And unfortunately, that happens with people. You reach out with them, but not to help them, to get something from them because of something you're lacking and it makes a mess. So Jacob was no hero, but maybe Esau could be. Maybe he really was just really hungry and his blood sugar levels weren't allowing him to think clearly. Maybe he'll come to his senses and try to work something else out, but here's what we see from Esau. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and then there's this five verbs that come right, one right after another. He ate, he drank, he got up and left. It's almost this awkward silence where we feel like there should be some conversation happening, some sort of dialogue, some sort of regret, renegotiation. But Esau was perfectly content with the deal he had gotten. 
His birthright meant nothing more than a bowl of lentil stew. Not even the good stuff with meat and chili in it. And so what we see next is the fifth verb, the one where it, that's really unique because the, the writer, Moses, he actually takes a step outside of the story to verbalize a moral judgment on Esau's character. So Esau despised his birthright. Despise means he valued it very little. He took something that should have been very precious and sacred, and he treated it like something common. So what have we seen in this story? We've got Isaac, who was a a father who couldn't show fatherly love. We've got Rebecca, who, who questioned her purpose of existence in the midst of extreme pain. We've got Jacob, who used deception to try to get what he was lacking. We've got Esau, who despised this most amazing gift he ever could have possibly had. What we're beginning to see, even in this very first introduction to Jacob, is that in the account of Jacob, you have to settle for an anti-hero. You know, when we read stories, we're always looking for that hero. Like, they're not always obvious at first, but there's some good quality about them, and you're like, there's my hope. There's the good guy. But Genesis was not written to give you a hero. One thing we often see in Jacob and in the other patriarchs is it shows us there, at, at best, we have this anti-hero, and I'll be honest, I wouldn't know the word anti-hero if it wasn't for T. Swift. Like, she kind of made it popular. It is exhausting always cheering for someone who just doesn't have what it takes. An anti-hero is someone who, who's your best option, but they lack the moral goodness that makes them the ultimate hero. So we're not going to go through this series and praise Jacob or Esau or Isaac or Rebecca or anyone else. These were people that struggled in very real ways. But the ultimate fulfillment doesn't come within the book of Genesis. Genesis, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, these are just a foreshadow of the hero who would come. See, with Jacob, in a sense, he switched places with his brother. He got to have the birthright, and we'll talk more about that next week. Jacob got to have the birthright through deception and trickery. But the ultimate hero didn't use deception. The ultimate hero, Jesus, used substitution. He gave up his birthright to you so that you are now called an inheritor of heaven, an heir of eternal things. And the way he did that was not through trickery, but through offering himself as a sacrifice to atone for your sin, to bring you to God. So that in your moment of struggle, when you identify what it is you're lacking, you've got someone that you're already holding on to that can carry you through. So question, what have you been reaching out for? How have you been dealing with your struggles? What have you been doing that people around you have seen? And what have you been doing that they haven't seen? And how has that been working? Have you been causing a mess in other people's lives because you're instinctually reaching out for something that just makes a mess and doesn't address the mess? 
What have you been reaching out for? And the, the cool thing about Jacob is he was reaching for the wrong things, but we actually do see him listed as a hero. It took him a while, but he got there. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it goes through a list of a lot of the people from the Old Testament that can be examples for us. And then finally, in verse 21, it gets to Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, so he, <laughs> they had to go all the way to his deathbed to see like this good thing that we can learn from, but he got there. When he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons, which we'll talk about later in the series, so I won't talk about it now. And he worshiped as he leaned on, to, on the top of his staff. See, Jacob had a limp. He had a limp because of what God was doing in him and through him. And even in his old age, as he was leaning on that staff, reaching for that support he needed, as he did it, he worshiped. And that's how his story ended. So I'm going to help you think about that story in your own context. How will your story end? And I think it has to do with how you navigate this question. What should you do if God doesn't remove the struggle that you've been struggling with? And you say, God, could you just please take away this, this temptation or this desire or whatever it is? God, take it away from me. But he hasn't. What should you do when God allows the struggle to continue? In Jacob's context, he, he wanted acceptance, but he couldn't get it. What do you do when God won't remove it? Number four. If God doesn't remove the struggle, ask him to fill what is lacking. And if you do that, that might be the ultimate best thing that could ever happen to you. That God allows you to continue to struggle so that you finally turn to him to fill whatever is lacking. Whether that's acceptance or purpose or hope. And we're going to pick it up there next time. As we continue the, the, the account of Jacob, a man who was deeply flawed and struggled in many ways, but someone who was molded by grace through the way that he struggled. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, our struggles that we go through can be consuming. They can be draining. And when we're halfway through the struggle, it can seem like it would never end. <clears throat> in your wisdom and, and in your love, you, you decide to allow those struggles to continue sometimes. And I pray that when that happens, you would give us the, the knowledge to do two things and the faith to do two things. Number one, that you would help us to recognize what it is we are really lacking. And number two, to see how you can uniquely fill it. Give us wisdom this week as we navigate our lives and our struggles in a way that draws us closer to you. Thank you for Jesus, who gave us the inheritance of heaven through his substitutionary life and death. Lead us closer to him as we hold on to him through every struggle we endure. It's in his name we pray. Amen.